Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 65 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's Bible question, who is the God of this age, according to the Bible? We're also going to be talking about how Christians are jars of clay and how we can overcome Satan. Hey, I do want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. If you have a Bible question you want us to cover, leave it as a comment at any post on BibleReadingPodcast.com. I also want to ask you to maybe check out our Facebook page. Just go search for Bible Reading Podcast. Give us a like there. Maybe give us a review. Even better, maybe give us a review on iTunes. That really helps reach people. And I would ask you just to share the podcasts on your Facebook page. You can share it through the link on iTunes, the the link that I share, or you can share it through one of the uh, BibleReadingPodcast.com's pages. Either way, just sharing the show gets the word out to other people, uh, maybe gets a few new listeners and invites people to uh, the journey of reading through the Bible with us on a daily basis. Today's Bible passages include Exodus chapter 16, where God sends manna, Job 34, where Elihu continues challenging Job and his friends, Luke 19, where Zacchaeus meets Jesus and repents in a really awesome Uh, obvious sort of way, and our focus passage, which is 2 Corinthians 4. Now, one of my favorite teachings in the Bible is that we humans are clay pots or jars of clay or earthen vessels, and you find that in 2 Corinthians 4, how God entrusts his great light, his presence and gospel to us to live in these imperfect dwellings. We're the jars of clay. We're the earthen pots. And today we're going to hear from Spurgeon about that in just a moment. But that's not our focus question of the day. Our focus question is a bit of a dark one, but kind of an important truth to understand. According to the Bible, who is the God of this age? Now, we before we plumb to the depths of that dark question, let's get some light first. Let's get some encouragement. So I want to begin with a couple of encouraging quotes from our dear brother Charles Spurgeon on the wonderful truth that we are the jars of clay, or since he quotes from the King James Version, we are earthen vessels with the splendor of Christ in us. And Spurgeon says, The weakness of the preacher only shows the power of God when he uses such poor means to accomplish so great an end. Never let us refuse to do good because our abilities are slender. Let us rather yield up our weakness unto the Lord that he may use it to his own glory. We're going to find as we keep reading in Second Corinthians that weakness being used by God is one of the powerful themes of that book and one that we really need to hear. One more Spurgeon quote about this passage. He says, God might have put the priceless treasure of the gospel into the golden vessels of cherubim and seraphim, and he might have sent angels who would never suffer, who would never err, who would never sin to preach the word, but instead of doing so, he has chosen to send the gospel to men by commonplace being like beings like ourselves. 
We have this treasure in earthen vessels, and this overflows much to God's glory. And, dear friends, the great object of the sending of the gospel into the world is the glory of God. He would manifest his mercy to men that his mercy might be glorified, and therefore he has committed the gospel not to the trust of perfect men, but to the trust of poor, shallow, earthen vessels like ourselves. Amen. Praise God for his wise ways. So let's read 2 Corinthians 4, and you can see if you can discern who the God of this age is. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Therefore, since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we are not at proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith in keeping with what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you. Indeed, Everything is for your benefit so that, as grace extends through more and more people, it may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. So did you catch that in Second Corinthians 4 verse 4? In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Most Christians would probably think that the Bible teaches that the God of this age would be God himself, and he most certainly is the one and only overall God of gods and King of kings. However, the earth is under the current dominion of Satan at the moment. He is the God of this age who, according to Paul, is warring against the gospel and blinding the minds of unbelievers so they don't hear the word of God or they don't understand it unto salvation. Consider other passages that teach the same thing. First John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God 
and that the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. That's terrifying. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. Mark four thirteen through 15 Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? Parable of the sower. How will you understand all of the parable? The sower sows the word. Some are like the words sown on the path. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word sown in them. This should be quite alarming to us. In addition to prowling around like a roaring lion, as 1 Peter 5, 8 says, the Bible is telling us here that Satan is warring against the delivery of the word of God. He steals the word when it is preached and he prevents people from understanding it. Furthermore, he's the God of this age and the whole world is under his sway. Not only that, but he controls a kingdom according to Jesus. In Luke eleven eighteen, Jesus says, if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? And twice in John 12 and John 14, I think, Jesus notes that Satan is the ruler of this world. Again, it's pretty terrifying. It's pretty shaking to us as Christians. Some people just think, well, Satan is on his throne in hell and he rules hell which is just complete and utter hogwash. This is not biblical at all. Satan is not in hell right now. When he is cast in hell at the end of time, he won't be ruling there. He will be tormenting there. Satan is ruling the earth right now. So let's turn to John Piper for some wisdom on what this means for us. Piper says, This is simply a stunning statement. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What, ama- what an amazing role and status this statement gives to Satan. He holds the whole world in his power. Is this your view of the world? Do you reckon with a satanic global power that influences all the world so deeply that John says the world simply lies in his power? This is what we are up against. Not to be aware of it, not to be stunned by it, is to be very vulnerable to it. But what does it mean? Well, if the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, then the evil one is a ruler of this world. And this world is an evil place to live. And this time we live in is an evil time. This is what we read in other parts of the New Testament as well. Take this world or this age. For example, Paul says in Galatians 1.4 that Christ himself, Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The age we live in is simply called evil. The world lies in the power of the evil one, and so the age of this world is evil. In Ephesians 5.16, Paul says, Redeem the time, for the days are evil. The days are evil, the age is evil, the world is evil, because the world and all the days of the world lie in the power of the evil one. So Paul tells Christians in Colossians 1.13 that what happened to them when they were converted is that they were quote, delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of Christ. The implication is that this age is ruled by a dominion of darkness. It's an evil age because the world lies in the power of a dark and evil master. To become a Christian is to be delivered from this dominion or this authority and power. You can see the same thing when you look at the New Testament descriptions of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Note the phrase, the God of this age. It's not surprising that if the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, then this evil one should be called the God of this age. Similarly, in Ephesians 2.2, 
Paul says to the Christians who had been delivered from the dominion of darkness, You all once walked according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. I don't know any better way to interpret this than literally that the air we breathe, the atmosphere in which we live and move, is permeated by a personal evil power, the power of the air. And so the whole world, as John says, lies under this evil power. And that power has a prince or a ruler called here the prince of the power of the air. He shapes the powerful patterns of the age and seems to do this mainly by working, as Paul says, in the sons of disobedience. He somehow fills the whole atmosphere, the air, with his power, but he is specifically at work inside those who walk in disobedience to Christ. Satan has the greatest freedom to work where the human will is most ready to disobey the will of God. So, that's bad news. I suspect that some of you will be surprised by all of this information. I find that preachers, churches, and even Christian parents, we tend to minimize the threat of Satan and to water down what the Bible says about his power and influence in the world. This could be due to ignorance of what the Bible teaches, or maybe to be charitable, it could be due to a greater focus on the power of God. I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure that we should soberly reckon with the enemy we are faced with and what the Bible itself teaches us about his power. It is frightening, and we cannot stand against him at all in and of ourselves. But... There's good news, plenty of it. We need to realize and rejoice that God wins in the end, and Satan will be utterly defeated. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We also have promises that God will protect us. Second Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, But the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and guard you from the evil one. We also know that Jesus has prayed for us and he continues to pray for us because as Hebrews says, he ever lives for intercession. John 17.15, Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them, as in us, future believers in Jesus, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And he has delivered us, according to Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And he's called us to stand, resist, and conquer. And he will empower us to stand, resist, and conquer with his word in us. 1 John 2.15 says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Not only that, he has equipped us with armor and a weapon to resist and be shielded. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, 
and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So we are not left unequipped. Not only that, he's promised us that the enemy will flee when we resist him. James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So there is good news, my friends. In fact, there's great news because Jesus is coming back. He is going to put everything aright and the enemy, Satan, will be utterly, completely absolutely defeated. And not only him, but death also. They both will be thrown into the lake of fire. Allow me to close with Revelation 22, 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the holy city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That's what we have to look forward to, my friends. The enemy doesn't win. God wins. And all who are in Christ share the victory, not by our own strength, not by our own merit or power, but by Christ in us, the hope of glory. Exodus chapter 16, verse 1, the entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate All the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This day way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain about us? Moses continued. The Lord will give you meat to eat this evening and all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness, and there in a cloud the Lord's glory appeared. The Lord spoke to Moses, I have heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will eat bread until you are full. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. 
So at evening quail came and covered the camp. In the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, What is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. So the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quarts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, No one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece, and all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet, on the Sabbath day, some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days' worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named the substance manna. Of course, manna sounds like the Hebrew word for what is it? It resembled coriander seed. It was white and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are to be preserved throughout your generations so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Moses told Aaron, Take a container and put two quarts of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. They used a measure called an omer, which held two quarts. Job chapter 34 verse 1. Then Elihu continued saying, Hear my words, you wise ones, and listen to me, you knowledgeable ones. Doesn't the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Let us judge for ourselves what is right. Let us decide together what is good. For Job has declared, I am righteous, yet God has deprived me of justice. When I lie about my case, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job? He drinks derision like water. He keeps company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, A man gains nothing when he becomes God's friend. Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. 
It is impossible for God to do wrong and for the Almighty to act unjustly, for he repays a person according to his deeds and he gives him what his conduct deserves. Indeed, it's true that God does not act wickedly and the Almighty does not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth? Who put him in charge of the entire world? If he put his mind to it and withdrew the spirit and breath he gave, every living thing would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I have to say. Could one who hates justice govern the world? Will you condemn the mighty righteous one who says to a king, worthless man, and to nobles, wicked men? God is not partial to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor, for they were all the work of his hands. They die suddenly in the middle of the night. People shudder, then pass away. Even the mighty are removed without effort. For his eyes watch over a man's ways, and he observes all his steps. There is no darkness, no deep darkness, where evildoers can hide. God does not need to examine a person further, that one should approach him in court. He shatters the mighty without an investigation and sets others in their place. Therefore he recognizes their deeds and overthrows them by night, and they are crushed in full view of the public. He strikes them for their wickedness because they turned aside from following him and did not understand any of his ways, but caused the poor to cry out to him, and he heard the outcry of the needy. But when God is silent, who can declare him guilty? When he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he watches over both individuals and nations so that godless men should not rule or ensnare the people. Suppose someone says to God, I have endured my punishment. I will no longer act wickedly. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I won't do it again. Should God repay you on your terms when you have rejected his? You must choose, not I. So declare what you know. Reasonable men will say to me, along with the wise men who hear me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without insight. If only Job were tested to the limit, because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He scornfully claps in our presence while multiplying his words against God. Luke chapter 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able because of the crowd since he was a short man. So running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain, He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half my possessions to the poor, Lord, and if I have extorted anything from anyone, I will pay back four times as much. Today salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. Therefore he said, A nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and told them, Engage in business until I come back. 
But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We don't want this man to rule over us. At his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, good servant, he told him, because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five manas. So he said to him, You will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your manna. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you are a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you have said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? And when I returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, and from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them and slaughter them in my presence. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, Go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus and after throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, he answered. I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling, and he said, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all of the people were captivated by what they heard. Amen. And brothers and sisters, may you and I be captivated by what we hear from Jesus. May we live it and follow it and hide it in our hearts. Amen. And Godspeed.